Well, good morning, Cornerstone. As you heard in that video, our lead pastor, Pastor Paul, is away this week. So it is my privilege to be able to open up God's Word with you this morning. So let's get right to that. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. And as you are flipping there, I just want to remind you quickly of what we have been talking about. We are in the middle, or actually we're at the end. We've got one more message after this one. We're at the end of a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, we heard Jesus telling us uh, to be alert, to be watchful, because there are enemies coming. Those enemies are false prophets. And they are coming in the appearance of sheep but they are wolves, wolves in sheep clothing, right? There's very real enemies out there, and they exist within the church, and we need to be alert, and we need to be on guard. Well, the challenge of that is to keep our eyes up and to be looking out there, right? To be alert, on guard. Well, in today's text, we're going to hear another warning. But this warning isn't to keep your eyes up and out there. It is a warning to actually look down and see what's going on inside of your own heart, There's also a danger. There's a danger of self. And there's a danger of a false self-assurance that we can have. We can think everything is right and good in our lives, but we couldn't be more mistaken. That's the challenge of today's message. We're going to take a deep dive into our hearts. And we're going to reflect on the nature of our personal faith. This is going to be an individual challenge. And I'll be honest, some of you are likely to be deeply uncomfortable as a result of this. You're going to recognize that perhaps you have been trusting in some things that are not sufficient to save you. They might be good things, but they are not saving things when they are left on their own. And it's a scary text, because it is a text that's going to speak to us about everlasting judgment. The idea that if we get this wrong, we could stand condemned and not even know it. Maybe this sounds extreme. Maybe this sounds heavy for the message that the youth pastor gets to bring. But it's a message we need to hear. And I'm not alone in thinking this is an extreme message. In fact, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher, describes our text with these words. These surely are in many ways the most solemn and solemnizing words ever uttered in this world. Not only by any man, but even by the Son of God himself. Those are heavy words. And if that doesn't stir you to want to pay close attention to what Jesus has for us this morning, I don't know what will. So let's look now. Let's look to God's word and see what he has for us in Matthew 7, verse 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do you find these words unsettling? Perhaps you should, because Jesus is here addressing people just like you and just like me. These are men and women who call Jesus Lord, and they're even involved in doing mighty works in his name. 
These are men and women who have zero doubt that they are a saved people. They are self-identifying as members of God's family. But it is to these self-assured people that Jesus says, I never knew you. See now why Lloyd-Jones thinks these are the most solemn words ever spoken in all of human history? Well, because we do not want these words to be spoken to anyone in this room, let's dive into the text. Let's unpack it together and see what we can learn. And we're going to do that first by just exploring three things that this text teaches us, three base truths. And the first of those is that a day of judgment is coming. Right? This is implicit in the text. It says, many will say to me, on that day. What is that day that we're talking about? It is the day of judgment, when all of humanity will stand before the Lord and be judged. And it's very possible that you might think that this should just be self-explanatory, that a day of judgment is coming. If you've been coming to Cornerstone, that's a, that's a pretty basic teaching that you would have heard here, heard here many times before. But unfortunately, it doesn't go without saying. The unfortunate truth is that there are many Christians who have begun to deny it. These are pockets of, of Christianity that would teach that Jesus is love and nothing but love and that he accepts and saves absolutely everybody, right? These are the people who will champion verses like John chapter 12, verse 47, where Jesus says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. That's good news. It is good news. However, if we were to take that and isolate it from the rest of Scripture, we would be confused, In fact, all we need to do is keep on reading to the very next verse. That's what John 12, 47 says. Look at what verse 48 says. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Here's the simple truth. If you are a whole Bible reader, you are going to be consistently confronted with the idea that a day of judgment is coming that one day we will all stand before the Lord and we will be separated to the right and to the left. Those who are on the right will inherit eternal life and those who are on the left will inherit eternal punishment. We get this teaching from the very first pages of our scriptures and we see it on the very last pages of our scriptures. And understanding this is absolutely essential if we are to understand the gospel, if we are to understand our Bible and if we are to understand this series that we've just been working through. The Sermon on the Mount makes zero sense if judgment is not a reality. If this life is all there is, then everything that Jesus taught us doesn't really make a lot of sense, right? If there is no kingdom of heaven, then why wouldn't we be storing up treasures in this life? If there is no judgment, then why wouldn't I return evil for evil? Why wouldn't I get what I think is rightfully mine and live my best life now no matter the cost? Right? We might as well just be selfish creatures like the other animals and worry only about our own concerns. But as it is, we don't live this way. And we don't live this way because we know a day of judgment is coming. We know there is a day where there will be justice and there will be recompense. We know this. But here's a question for you. You know this up here, at least I hope you know this up here, you've come to understand it now. But you know it down here? Do you live like it is true 
Has this series on the Sermon of the Mount, has Jesus' words changed you? Has it made you rethink the way that you are doing marriage? Has it changed the way you do finances? Has it turned you into a more forgiving, a more merciful, and a more meek individual? Because this is what the sermon is designed to do. It is designed to transform us from the inside out. And if it hasn't been doing that for you, then you need to cry out to God. And you need to ask that it would, because a day of judgment is coming. And on that day, you don't want to just be self-assured. You want to be guaranteed that you belong to the family of God. You want to look like Jesus' people. Now, unfortunately, Jesus is speaking these words at the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount because some people were assured. They thought they knew it, but it was a false assurance, a false self-assurance. They were trusting in things that were not able to save them. So we're going to turn to those. Jesus gives us two warnings. So the second thing that Jesus teaches us, and the first warning he gives, is that mere orthodoxy will not save you. Now, in case there's any confusion around this point, you think, wow, he's using fancy church words. It's true. Orthodoxy may seem like a strange word, but it's not all that complicated. Orthodoxy is just a word for right belief. The idea here is that right belief alone will not save you. Orthodoxy is great. It is 100% a wonderful thing. To be orthodox is to believe the words of Jesus. It is to believe the words of the apostles. And it is to believe the words that church history has passed down ever since Jesus and the apostles. Everyone in this room should desire to be orthodox. But no one in this room should trust in their orthodoxy alone to save them. In this passage this morning, we see that these people had some right belief about Jesus. How do they refer to him? They refer to him as Lord. And not just as any other teacher or Lord, but they even double emphasize this. They call him Lord, Lord. This repetition is significant. It is pointing to the authority, the unique authority of Jesus as Lord. And they're even tying in this title with judgment, right? They're they're at the day of judgment, and they're still calling him Lord. They recognize him to be the Messiah and the judge, and yet God still responds to them by saying, I never knew you. It's not enough to know right things about Jesus. It is a wonderful thing to know Jesus for who he is, but this knowledge is not sufficient on its own. And we see this, again, one of the themes of this morning is going to be the necessity to be whole Bible readers. If you read your scripture from cover to cover on a regular basis, you're going to know most of these things. Well, later on in our New Testament, in the book of James, he writes to address some people who are falling into this same trap who think that just knowing the right things is enough to save them. James 2, verse 19, he says to these people, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Isn't that a little bit nerve-wracking? Jesus is confronting this group of people. He said, I've got good belief. I know that God is one. I've got a proper understanding of who God is. But they did not have a proper understanding of what saving faith is. They thought saving faith was a matter of belief 
and belief alone. They did not think that their faith needed to change them. So long as they knew all of the answers to all of the Sunday school questions, they thought they were good. They thought they were in. But James stops them in their tracks. He says, you know who else knows all the answers to all of the Sunday school questions? The demons. And do you know how they respond? Not with great rejoicing, they shudder. Because you know what's different? The demons know, but they do not worship. They do not bow before him and seek to live for him. Right? That should give us pause. It's not enough just to have good orthodoxy. The demons have good orthodoxy, but they don't live in light of it. The only faith that can truly save is a faith that results in obedience. And I want us to hear that. I want us to hear that in this room this morning. I think it's a message we need to hear as evangelical, some would call us small, our reformed people. We need to hear this. We could fall into this trap if we are not careful. Even we here at Cornerstone Aurelia. Right? There's one thing that we really pride ourselves in as a church. If you've ever been to one of our newcomers' luncheons, you will know this to be true because it's the first thing we mention every single time. We are people of the word. We love God's word. Praise be to God for that. I'll be honest with you, I'm only here because that is how we self-identify. We should be people of the word. We should want to have good theology and be learning new things about Jesus. In this day and age, let's wave that flag high and let's wave it proud. Don't shy away from being known as a person of the book. Because being rooted in God's word and having good theology is absolutely critical. But it can come with a danger. It can come with the danger of becoming puffed up and proud and growing complacent. And I see this time and time again. I see this firsthand as a youth pastor on a yearly basis as new students work their way up to junior high. I meet students all of the time who grew up in the church, who grew up memorizing scripture, attending Sunday school, memorizing catechism around the family table. And they come to me in youth group in grade six, and they know every single answer to every question I could ever throw at them. And they seem super spiritual, and they seem super spot on, almost to the point where I'm like, they don't even need me. Maybe I should sit at their feet. They could teach me a thing or two. These kids have it together. But the truth is, knowing all of the right answers does not necessarily mean we have it all together. Sometimes we can know right things, but our heart can be far. So to think that it's okay just to get by by our answers is abundantly naive. We need to be looking at the heart. We need to be having real and honest conversations. Because, for example, if I were to just dedicate the next couple years of my life to studying books on brain surgery, per se, I hope that none of you would actually trust me with a scalpel. Just later, like, you've read a few books, that's good. I trust you. No, there's a difference between knowing about a thing and actually being equipped to do a thing. But as I say that, let me be clear please don't stop doing catechism with your family. Please do not stop bringing them to church every Sunday. Don't stop reading the Bible with your toddlers because these are good things. All I want to say to you is don't let that be all you do. 
Don't think it is sufficient for your children to know good things about Jesus. Give them opportunity to do good things for Jesus. Ask them about the nature of their faith. Look into their heart. Try and have open and honest conversations with your kids so that as they learn new things and as you teach them new truths, if any of it seems odd or weird or unsettling to them, they can ask you about it. Because one of the things that is most heartbreaking about being a youth pastor is seeing those students who know all of the right things, who seem to have it all together, go off to college and university, and all of a sudden they've got an open door to all of their doubts. And those doubts come pouring out, and it devastates them. And they walk away from the Lord. And it is tragic, because we thought they were good. We thought they were fine, because they knew the right answers. So make it your goal, parents. Make it your goal, children's ministry and youth volunteers, to raise well-rounded, authentic followers of Jesus. And not just children who know a lot of stuff about the Christian faith. Unless you think I'm just pointing the finger on this, I'm like, this is a danger for you guys. I want to say this is also a very real danger for myself. I can recall a season of my life where I struggled with this with this idea that orthodoxy and knowing good things would save me and be sufficient for me. I did my Bible school out in Saskatchewan at Briarcrest, and it was a wonderful time. I learned more in those four years than I had ever learned before about Jesus Christ. I was studying biblical studies. I had a minor in theology. Things were going good, right? Like it was in the thick of academia and Christian teaching. And I tricked myself into thinking that if I was scoring good grades in my school, then I was clearly in right relationship with the Lord. After all, if I get a 95% on my Synoptic Gospels paper, how could anyone argue that I don't know Jesus? How could they say I'm not in right relation? Like, look at this paper. Look at what I know about Jesus. But just because I was doing good at school did not mean I was doing good with the Lord. Right? So even though I was maybe getting a 90% on my Bible study classes, if you had to pull back the curtains and examine the way I was doing on my brotherly love, I'd probably score about a 40. Even more to my shame, if you were to do a little analysis on my prayer life at the time, I was scoring a 30. But I was focusing all of my attention on my grades and my paper, and I thought just knowing Jesus as an object of academia was enough. I had neglected to serve him as Lord and worship him as Lord. So that's a very real danger. It's a danger for all of us who love books, who love learning and love a good theological debate. These are good things, but they can come with a danger. And it is a danger that has always existed. There's a wonderful book that everyone in this room should read, and it's not Pilgrim's Progress. Read that one, but... (laughs) I'm going to step away from Pilgrim's Progress today. Uh, I am going to challenge you to read Knowing God by J.I. Packer. If you were in our Life Together small group this summer, you know that I said I've got two favorite books. One of them was Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and this one is Knowing God by J.I. Packer. This book helped me in the early days of my Christianity to become an orthodox, Bible-believing Christian, to understand the nature of my faith. But I love this book because he addresses this problem. He says, hey, this is a book about knowing God, but it's not enough just to know about God. I want you to know God. I want you to have right relationship with him. 
So here's some of these marvelous advice, marvelous words that he starts off with. Here's what he says. To be preoccupied with getting theological knowledge as an end in itself, to approach Bible study with no higher a motive than a desire to know all the answers, is the direct route to a state of self-satisfied self-deception. We need to guard our hearts against such an attitude and pray to be kept from it. As we saw earlier, there can be no spiritual health without doctrinal knowledge, but it is equally true that there can be no spiritual health with it if it is sought for wrong purpose and valued by the wrong standard. Did you catch that last line? He admits doctrinal knowledge is a great and wonderful thing, but if it is sought for the wrong purpose and valued by the wrong standard, it is a poison to your soul. So let me ask you, why do you love God's Word? Why do you read it every day? Do you love it because in it you find words of life? You find the promises that you need to get you through? You find hope for the day and tomorrow and for all of eternity? Well, if that's why you read it, then hallelujah. That is why you should be reading it. That is why you should rejoice in it. But if you read it because you find in the Bible an opportunity to impress your friends or to humiliate your enemies, then may God have mercy on your soul. These are not light things. When we approach God for wrong, sinful, selfish motivations, we will stand condemned. Let's take these things seriously. We need to, because we do not want to hear those words, I never knew you. Do not be self-deceived. Love orthodoxy, but love it because it leads you deeper into right relationship with the Lord. And this is just our first lesson keeps getting better. We've got a second warning for us this morning that is just as valid for us. The second warning is that mere orthopraxy will not save you. At this point, you might think I'm just starting to love my ortho words, and I guess I do, Uh, but orthopraxy is just another fancy church word for right action, right? We've got orthodoxy, right belief, orthopraxy, right action. And just as orthodoxy was a good thing, so too orthopraxy is a great thing. We should strive to be people who hear the word and do the word. But we should not grow too confident in our ability to do the word. Right? Don't give yourself a quick pat on the back when you serve in Sunday. It's going to be like, Jesus is surely going to let me in now. Look what I just put up with for an hour. That's not how it works. It is good to serve in Sunday school but that's not going to get you into the kingdom. And people were relying on it. Jesus knew that people would always rely on it. Right? They said, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do many mighty works in your name? These people were pointing to the things that they had done in the name of Jesus. And there's no indicator in this text at all to suggest that they were trying to pull off a bold-faced lie to Jesus. In all probability, these were men and women doing great things for the Lord in the name of the Lord. And yet Jesus still says, I never knew you. What are we to make of that? Well, one commentator, R.T. France, he says this, prophecy 
exorcism and miracles can hardly be described as bad fruit. But even these spiritual activities can apparently be carried out by those who still lack the relationship with Jesus, which is the essential basis for belonging to the kingdom of heaven. You can do good things without a relationship, and that will do nothing for you in getting into the kingdom of heaven. And once again, whole Bible reading will teach you this truth. Throughout the scriptures, we are going to find people who fall into this category, people who do things for Jesus and yet didn't know him. In fact, we were introduced to one of these people last week in Pastor Paul's sermon. He introduced us to the prophet Balaam. Do you remember him? Balaam was a man who spoke the word of God. And in fact, he couldn't do anything else. Though he desired to curse Israel, he was constrained to bless them. He was held captive by the Spirit, and he could only utter that which God said was true. So we could ask ourselves, does this mean Balaam was a good man? He was certainly a prophet of the Lord. Was he a good man who should have anticipated a warm welcome on the day of judgment? Absolutely not. Balaam was not a great man. Balaam prophesied in the name of the Lord, but he was motivated by sin. He was motivated by greed, and when he was given the opportunity, he was more than happy to give some advice on how to make Israel fall. He says, you know what? I cannot curse them on behalf of the Lord. I just cannot do that. But let me tell you how you can make the Lord curse them. Here's the trick into leading these people astray. Do this, and they will fall into sin and ruin. Does that sound like a man of God to you? No. But he was a prophet. I wouldn't be surprised if on that day of judgment, Balaam said, Did I not prophesy in your name, Lord? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Let's jump forward a little bit. Let's consider the time of Jesus and a man who went by the name of Judas. Judas is a man who walked and talked with Jesus. He is a man who was commissioned by the Lord to preach God's word and to cast out demons. And we're given zero indications that he alone of all of the apostles was unable to perform this ministry. It seems to suggest Judas did mighty works in the name of Jesus. But how did his story end? Certainly not with a warm welcome at the pearly gates. His story ends with him betraying the Lord, being found to be a worker of lawlessness, and he comes to a bloody end. So there's two examples, but let's just fast forward a little bit more. Let's go to the book of Acts and consider this story of the sons of Sceva. I'm going to be honest with you, I love this story. I think this is a hilarious story. And because I have the pulpit this morning, I can choose to read this story in its entirety. Uh, So we are going to look at Acts 19, verse 11 to 16. Uh, You don't have to turn there. You're welcome to, but it is on the screen and it is not that long. So listen to this story about these people who tried to work miracles by the name of Jesus. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirits answered them, 
Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Isn't that a fascinating little story? Just like God's doing these incredible things by the hands of the apostles, and the people are amazed, and the Jewish exorcists are like, oh, they're having so much more success. Let's do what they're doing. Let's just start using the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Paul's got a lot of power. So that's what they do. But it's not met with the same kind of success, right? They thought that the name of Jesus was some sort of magical incantation that would grant them power. That it was a weapon to be used to give them success. But how does that turn out for them? The story says that there's seven men, seven sons of the Jewish high priest who are overtaken by one man and they are left naked and fleeing. Right? You cannot have hope in the name of Jesus if you do not also have right relationship with him. Right? All three of these examples, all three of these people are teaching us the same lesson. A saving relationship with the Lord goes far beyond performing mighty works in his name. It is very possible that a person could give their life to ministry, that they could see God do incredible things through their ministry and still hear Jesus say, I never knew you on the day of judgment. Once again, solemn words. But let's put that in context. That might be a little bit more relatable for you. It is entirely possible that you could read through your Bible every year, that you could attend church every Sunday, and that you could serve regularly in your local soup kitchen and still hear the words, I never knew you on the day of judgment. This should make us stop and evaluate our lives. Right? We need to do some reflecting. We need to ask ourselves about what we are trusting in for our salvation. Are you trusting in your faithful church attendance? Do you think just because you showed up here this morning, you're going to have a ticket into heaven? Are you trusting in your works of charity? Are you trusting in your theological knowledge? It can be tempting to trust these things because they are good. They are commendable and they are helpful. But none of these things on their own are sufficient to save. This is a solemn message. These are solemn words. And perhaps as you hear them, you are asking yourself the question, well, then how can I even know if I am truly saved? That is the right question to be asking right about now. And the good news is that this text also gives us an answer to that question. It gives us some hints about who the saved person is. So let's look at that now. Let's end this message by looking at two things this passage says about the saved person. The first thing we see is that a saved person is someone who is known by the Lord. Right? When Jesus pronounced his guilty verdict, he does so by uttering the words, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, at first glance, that seems like a bit of an odd statement. Like, how can the Lord, who is omniscient, not know something? Does he mean, like, I've never met you before. I didn't know you even existed. How did you find your way here? That's not it. That's not what he means by I never knew you. Once again, R.T. France is helpful here. 
Here's what he says. To know is commonly used in biblical literature for much more than acquaintance or recognition. It denotes a relationship. In chapter 125, it was used following the Hebrew idiom for the sexual relationship. But here, it reflects rather the Old Testament idiom for God's special relationship with his people. I never knew you means in effect that he does not acknowledge them to be a part of his true family. Well, then, to be a saved person is to belong to the family of God. How do we get in? The Bible teaches that we are not naturally born into this family. It teaches that we are adopted into it. John 1, 12 to 13 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This, ultimately, is our only ground for hope. We are secure not because of the strength of our own convictions or the works that we have done, but only in the adoptive love of the Father, which came to us based on no merit of our own. Now, to get a better picture of that love, I want to do a little bit of an extended reading in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. It's a wonderful reading, so it's worth doing it in full. Here's what it says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Right? That's where we all were. That's where we are naturally. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Hearing all that, works matter. We have been made to work for the Lord, but they aren't first. What comes first is the adoptive, loving mercy of God. And we need to hear that. We need to remind ourselves each and every day that we are a saved people only because of the great love with which he loves us. And this love was displayed to us by the coming of Jesus Christ. It was displayed in his life. It was displayed in his death, in his resurrection, in his intersection. Like intercession, he is God's love displayed to us. We are saved because of Christ and because of Christ alone. So lean into that. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Paul 
told us a story about a conversation he had with a dying man. Do you remember it? He knew that this man was not long for this world, so we just asked him, hypothetically, says, hey, when you pass away, let's say you find yourselves at the pearly gates, and they ask you, why should you come in? What will you say? Well, our natural responses want to talk about the things that we have done. Well, I've always attended church. Um, I've been a nice person. I help my neighbors out when they need it, right? That's our gut reaction. When I talk to students about being baptized and I just ask them about, again, why they believe they are saved and why they want to get baptized, probably eight times out of ten, they want to go to those kind of answers. Like, oh, I know that I'm in right relation with the Lord because of this, this. It's like, no, 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 no. We all know the gospel. We've heard it, but sometimes we fail to recognize how to apply it. So when Pastor Paul was having this conversation, he just stopped the man. He said, let me, let me just remind you of what you should say. Don't tell the Lord what you have done, but tell the Lord and remind him what he has done. Plead Jesus and only Jesus. That is our hope. Don't be like the men and women in today's passage who sought entrance based on their many mighty works done in the name of Jesus. Declare his works and not your own. But do make sure you are working because that is the second way that the saved person is described in this passage. A saved person, we are told, is obedient from the heart. We see this very clearly in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So are you sitting here this morning unsure of your own salvation? Well, one of the questions you can ask yourself is, am I a person who does the will of my Father who is in heaven? And if you're not sure what that will is, the good news is that Christ came to us in part to make known what that will was, and he has just given us a sermon expounding that will. So we can look at the Sermon on the Mount, and we can say, hey, does this look like me? Does it look like I have been clothed in the robes of Jesus? Lloyd-Jones says much the same thing. Here's what he says when he's giving advice to his own people about when they're asking the question, am I truly saved? He says, the way to test yourself, the way to test any man is to look below the surface. Do not look at the apparent results. Do not look at the wonders and the marvels, but discover whether he conforms to the Beatitudes. Is he poor in spirit? Is he meek? Is he humble? Does he groan in his spirit as he sees the world? Is he a holy man of God? Those are the tests. The tests of the Beatitudes, the tests of the Sermon on the Mount. The man's character, the man's nature. Not the appearance only, but the reality itself alone counts with God. This is what a person who has been adopted into God's family looks like. And from the very beginning of this series, we have tried to make it very clear that the Sermon on the Mount is not an instruction manual on how we get into heaven, right? Orthopraxy will not save you. Doing these things will not save you. However, the Sermon on the Mount is the code of conduct for citizens of the kingdom. Jesus has pulled aside his disciples and says, hey, now that you're in, Now that you are following me, now that I have adopted you into my family, this is what you will look like. This is what you will do. 
This is the mission that we are about. So we will look like the Beatitudes, and we will be obedient to the commands found throughout the sermon. So this morning, you can ask yourself, does your life reflect all of the words that Jesus has just spoken? Are you striving to live your life in conformity with God's will? When you fall short of that, which you inevitably will, do you repent of your sins and seek to get back on that narrow way? Do you look to the Lord's help? Well, if that describes you, if you are striving and repenting again and again, then you can go home and you can rest easy, sleep like a baby, because your salvation is secure in Christ. You are leaning on him. You are trusting in him. And that's all you need to do. However, if looking like Jesus and obeying his will is pretty low on your priorities list, if you're much more concerned about career success or the health of your family, and Jesus is just something you do every Sunday, it's kind of a family tradition. If you're relying on things like church attendance or any other good deed, then you need to shudder. You need to be scared. Because the only people who will have entrance into the kingdom are those who have been transformed and submitted themselves to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's good news. The good news is that it is not too late for all of this to be true of you. All you need to do is bow your knee to the lordship of Christ. You need to repent of your sins and you can receive the forgiveness that he offers you. You can be truly adopted into his family. You don't have to jump through any hoops to do it. You just need to come to him and bow before him and ask for what he offers. And then go. Go live your life in obedience to his will and continue to repent when you fall short and trust that your salvation is secure because Christ is the perfect one. Christ is the one in whom we are secure. And when we've done that, you have nothing to fear on that day of judgment. You don't need to wonder what the Lord will say. You can have the confidence that if you are in Christ, you will be met with the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Thanks be to God that that is the hope we can have. Let's pray. Lord, you have confronted us in ways that we don't want to be confronted. It would be easier if you just left us in our sin, left us in our ignorance. Because changing from these things can be hard. I'm sure that there are people in this room who have been trusting in their theological knowledge to save them. They think that if they can just answer the catechism on the day of judgment, they will be good, but you have told us that is not true. And there are others who are trusting in their ministry and their good works, and they are forgetting that the only work that counts is the work that Christ has done on our behalf. So Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who that is true of, even if it was true in my own life, I pray that you would just send me away from this place with a heavy heart, that you would not let any of us go until we have repented from this and got back into right relationship with you. And Lord, we are thankful. This is hard news, but it is good news. Thank you that it does not rely on us. Thank you that we do not have to be smart enough. Thank you that we don't have to be strong enough because you are strong, you are mighty, and you have done it all.
So we're leaning on you this morning, and we are thanking you for the salvation that is ours through Christ Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.